So, uh, hi, Scott. Uh, what I would like to do, I will introduce a little bit myself because you probably don't know me at all. So, I started um, developing Java in um, 1995 and it was still Oak. And then since 1997, I'm a freelancer. And I attended uh, the first Java one in year 2000 and uh, attended your keynote. And uh, what uh, I really appreciated, it was a, a little bit sense of humor. So you always uh, talk stories about ice hockey and, you know, the side stories, not only focusing on technology. And I was actually curious who you actually are, and I wanted to ask you some questions. And the first question is... Um, how Sun Microsystems started. So it was like a spontaneous idea or you met someone or what is the story behind behind Sun Microsystems? Thank you, Adam. Uh, there's, a, there's a pretty simple and accidental story for how it all got started. But, uh, when I went to business school, I met and uh, became good friends with Vinod Kosla. And I went off to go uh, make tanks and armored personnel carriers, Vinod went off and did a CAD startup. Eventually, we uh, reconnected back out in California, and he had left Daisy Systems, which was an early CAD company, and was looking to start a new company. And he met and Andreas von Bechtelsheim, who was uh, also known as Andy, mm -hmm. uh, was at Stanford building the Stanford University Network, hence Sun Workstation. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, licensing the technology out to any company that wanted it, but they couldn't manufacture it in volume. So Benoit said, let's go start our company. We'll make these things. And Andy said, well, who will build them? And he said, well, Scott's in the computer industry now building computers down the street. I was uh, at Onyx Systems, which was the first company to put Unix on a microprocessor. So uh, the three of us got started, and we found Bill Joy very shortly, and those became the four founders. Uh, I was uh, 27, as were the other three. And I had more. I had three years business experience, which was more than the other three founders combined. So we were quite um, quite inexperienced. Uh, ignorance is bliss. So we were very happy, and uh, we just started working and building workstations. And the orders came flying in. The first year, we we, we incorporated in February, February 24th, 1982. And by May, we were profitable. In our first fiscal year, July 1st to June 30th, we did uh, $8.5 million in revenue, and then $39 million the next year, then $115 the next year, then $250 the year after that, then $500 million, and then we had a billion dollars the next year. So it was a, a rocket ride from day one. So it's not very usual for a startup, right? <laughs> It's really rare to be making money. Uh, yeah. You know, sometimes that's not the right way to go do it, I guess, if you look at Amazon, who uh, went a long time before they made money. Yeah. My understanding is you are a businessman, and the other guys were programmers, hackers, or uh, technical skilled people. So, why you are interested in technology? Um, you know, I, I, uh, I remember when I went uh, from making tanks. And I'm a personnel carrier. I went over to this little company called Onyx because of uh, my professor from college was buying these computers and they couldn't make them fast enough. So I went over and I looked at this little, like, too high pizza box and I lifted the cover off and the, the, the CEO showed me what was inside the box. And I said, well, how much do you sell these things for? And he said about 
$40,000, which is the price of a very high-end luxury car, and I can pick it up. And then I said, well, how much does it cost? What are, what are the parts costs and the assembly costs of this product? And he said, oh, about $8,000. And my eyes got really big. I said, $8,000 to make and you can sell it for $40,000? I want to be in this business because I come from the automobiles business growing up. And I was in the plastics businesses where you had... You had to uh, go to the fourth decimal point uh, in pricing a little piece of plastic, and your margins were terrible. I thought this is this is like stealing, so uh, I decided to get into technology. Okay, but uh, this seems to me like is a very aggressive, capitalistic, I would say, point of view. But a Sun Microsystem was a little bit different. So my opinion about Sun was is all a bit about sharing and openness. So you change your mind later on, or what's the deal with that? No, I've always. I've always been a raging capitalist, and I, I, uh, I'm a very much a small government kind of a guy. But I also believe that, um, you know, there's different strategies. You know, I think Larry Ellison is a great capitalist. We were probably good capitalists, and in, in, in more ways than one, we were good in the sense that we made a lot of money for our shareholders. We paid our employees very well, all the rest of it. But we didn't allow... The rest of the world, the industry, our partners, our employees, uh, our customers to share in our efforts. So it was just a, a different way, but it was very capitalist. We we um, we were not about government regulation and government subsidies. I mean, if you you know you look at uh, Elon Musk, he's been very good at using um, subsidies and uh, those sorts of things to advance this business. But we, we, uh, we really pretty much tried to stay away from, uh, the regulation and the government subsidy piece and just went out and tried to build product. But we, we, uh, allowed employees to share in stock options. We open sourced probably close to 80% of our R and D budget. And at our peak, we were, we were a top 40 R and D spender worldwide, all industries, pharmaceuticals, aerospace, technology, all the rest of it. And we were, um, we were, we were truly driving the, uh, and, and leading the open source and sharing parade out there, but it was, it was to make money. It was, uh, a nice way to be, uh, a, a good, uh, global citizen, but at the same time being raging capitalist, let's, let's, uh, let's not, uh, mince words there. Our, our duty was to our shareholders. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But this is still remarkable because uh, still with I struggle sometimes with you know, managers to open, open source something which is actually absolutely irrelevant for the business and they stay struggle with the idea to, to make it open. And uh, to- uh, You're on a big issue. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it just it drove me nuts because I would go into customers and I would say the real reason behind open source, besides the fact that you have mankind engineering it, The quality is better because everybody has inspected the code. The real reason for doing open source is it lowered the barrier to exit massively. And if you look at the barriers to exit on technology, they are very high. Getting off of Windows or Mac is very high. Getting off the mainframe was very high. Getting off of all of these technologies is very, very high. Whereas if you have open source, you have the source code for the off-ramp of that technology. You know, getting off of Oracle or SAP is nearly impossible for these companies. And yet the buyer continues 
to ignore the barrier to exit. They look at the barrier to entry, the purchase price, and they look at the ongoing cost of operation, the service contract, but they never look at the barrier to exit. That's, they just kick that can down the road. And so companies that can establish dominant positions with proprietary technology make the most money for their shareholders because of that uh, lack of, I mean, can you imagine driving a Ford and not being able to move to a BMW because the barrier to exit is like moving from Windows to Mac? Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. So it's, just, it's just, that's why open source is so powerful. You, you have to, you know, Oracle bought us and, you know, Larry kind of missed the sharing class in college. So, you know, the, <laughs> the we work, you know, that, that technology, there's no real big leader in the open source trade. Perhaps IBM and Jenny Rometty, the CEO, with their acquisition of uh, Red Hat will now try to uh, assume the leadership position in front of the open source parade, but I don't know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, what what I said still remarkable that you did it uh, 20 years ago, and it's still right now is still some fiction with it. But uh, you are yeah, the we, only. We actually did. We actually did that 35 in 1982 is when we started. We were the first company uh, day one in 1982 to put TCP/IP on every computer we shipped the open source. Mm -hmm. networking protocol and you had sna you had decknet you had uh microsoft's land manager all of these competing networking schemes and guess which one won mm -hmm. the open one were you the only businessman uh around this founders of some microsystems all um because andy was a technician i think the uh, bill joy was like a true hacker and then you you were the businessman and there was uh vnot and vinot and he was a businessman or a technician? Um, you know, they're, they're, those three guys are all brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I was smart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, they were brilliant. Yeah, I was smart. And when we invented NFS, well, first of all, you know, we adopted Berkeley Unix, which was the open source version of Unix. So when Bill Joy came to uh, the sun with the Berkeley Unix expertise, we all sort of understood there was no way this little company was going to compete against IBM unless we had mankind helping us engineer the product. So we understood that. And then the first real test came when uh, Bill Joy walked in with NFS, the network file system, and he said to the staff, uh, my staff, and he says, all right, now we're going to make this open. And everybody said, no, you don't want to do that. And Bill, you know, that's the, that, that's the crown jewels. Source code at that time was considered the crown jewels. And Bill said, what good is a telephone that doesn't connect with other phones? And we all got it immediately, but the old timers we had hired from the mainframe mini computer world were looking at us like we were, were crazy. But when we launched NFS and it took over and it became an industry standard, all of a sudden, everybody in the company understood what we were all about. And, and that was sort of the last time we had to, to worry about it. But I don't take credit for that. I, I think Bill's joy was um, really the, the one who drove it. But all three of us immediately, uh, of the other founders immediately, you know, understood the power of what we were doing there. Is it a true story that Bill Joy actually uh, um, optimized the full TCP ICE st uh, stack in a shortest amount of time? So this was like, I read something about that. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a pretty amazing technical talent. Um, I sort of wish he was still more active. He was, 
he was so talented and so insightful and forward thinking. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we invented that was 20, 30 years ahead of time, we had Google Glass, you know, back in the old days, we had wearable uh, computing, the Java ring. I was on the cover of Fortune magazine wearing a Java ring. I still have it. The, yeah, exactly. The Internet of Things was something we uh, we started. Genie was our uh, auto registry and discovery and registry and technology that was, you know, way, way ahead of its time. So many of the things that we did, the network is the computer. We were way ahead of our time on that kind of stuff. So, um, who, who invented you know, the slogan, network was the computer? You know, everybody says they did. Um, okay. There's a okay. whole bunch of people running around, you know, I, it was, it was, um, there was one that came up in our staff, uh, a list of a whole bunch of different, uh, and, and the staff basically all jumped on it and said, we like that one. And away we got, went, went and, you know, market, somebody in marketing was probably the first person to say it, but I don't know who that was. And that poor person got drowned out by all the VPs who wanted to take credit for it. You know, uh, success has a million inventors, failure has none. Yes, sure. But a genie Java Intelligent Network infrastructure was really remarkable back then. But I have to say, the marketing was terrible. So I remember I attended a Sun Microsystems conference in Germany, and they tried to market genie as, I remember, printer driver distribution system or something. And actually, if you think about this, so genie was like a serverless or could be used as a serverless technology or function as a service, which is really hot right now or a service-oriented architecture. So um, there was, um, it, it, it seemed to me like there was a great technology, but uh, there, there were not that great skills in marketing. You know, the marketing at Sun, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. We were doing so many things, inventing so many great things. We had so many smart people. We had so much on our plate, and we were, you know, the real key as the CEO is how do we stay focused? How do we... You know, continue. And by the way, we had to price everything a lot more aggressively because we were in the open source world. So margins were a lot thinner. Uh, the value to the customer was a lot higher. And, you know, Java might have been one of the greatest marketing efforts ever. Uh, Spark and Solaris were, were huge marketing successes. And there were just lots of other things. It was not clear how we would make money on Genie at the time. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't a, a, a clear area of focus. We had lots of other stuff going on. We made more mistakes at Sun than, than, than you can count. I mean, I'll give you the earliest mistake we made. Uh, Route D ran on Sun OS on our workstations. Mm -hmm. And people used our workstations as routers because of Route D. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the Chinese internet was built on uh, Sun workstations running Route D. And the telcos were using it. And then some folks here in the valley decided, you know, that workstation is not doesn't have enough ports and it's got a lot of overhead in it. So they built a very simple little router with lots of ports on it and uh, just re-implemented Route D and Cisco got started. Mm -hmm. So we totally missed the whole Cisco network equipment because we were busy doing all the other things we were doing. Now you can say that was a mistake or it was a smart thing to focus or You know, who knows? But, you know, if you can predict where the technology is going to go in the next 20 years and start working on all of those now, I'll tell you one of the other things that would have 
been huge is if we had started an open source database effort and bundled it into SunOS and then Solaris early on, uh, Oracle um, used to overprice their database on our platform because IBM and Microsoft would bundle their databases for free. So when they competed against them, they would bundle it for free. But when they were running their platform, they overcharged. And that fundamentally hurt our, our margins. There were lots of things I would do differently. Uh, but but in the end, I think all of the 235,000 former Sun employees are pretty proud of what we did get done in the 30-plus years that we were out there. No, absolutely. Uh, you you did so many great things. So it's really hard you know, to have a clear marketing um, vision or uh, slogan because there are so many different parts going on. As a Java developer, what interests me, there is an old story like uh, a few developers want to, to quit Sun because they say hey, Sun is not no more innovative. And you said, hold on, uh, create a small company. And the name was Javasoft. And they started to uh, implement Java. Is it true? Is it somehow true or completely wrong? That's partly correct. So when we were always looking for new people, uh, Bill Joyers and staff meeting, and he mentioned James Gosman. I said, who's James Gosman? And he said, oh, he's over at Carnegie Mellon. He's the greatest programmer alive. And I thought Bill Joy was the greatest programmer alive. So when the greatest programmer I knew was saying, this is the greatest programmer alive, I said, let's hire him. He said, no, nah, he's not going to come over. He's very happy over there. You won't get him. I said, Bill, give me his phone number. And we called him right there, and we talked to him to come out and visit and he joined Sun, and he was doing really great stuff. He and Bill Joy were good friends, and uh, had, had huge mutual respect for each other. And then a few years later, I heard through the grapevine that James was thinking of quitting the company. So I called James up and said, come over to my office right now. So he came over and sat down looking a little sheepish, and I said, James, I hear you were thinking of leaving the company. He said, yeah, I've kind of decided I want to go work on some consumer-grade stuff that will ship in the hundreds of millions. Um, you know, I love, I've been working on enterprise technology for so long, and I've got this idea, and I, I want to go out and, and do it. I, I go, all right, I will fund it. You tell me what you need, how much money, where, who you want to hire, um, what facilities you need. I will fund the entire thing. No questions asked. Uh, you can put up a pirate's flag, you can call whatever you want, and you call it green, but start with that was the original name, and Oak was the original product that he built. I said, the only, law, the only rule is that you need to, in two weeks, come back and give me your little business plan. It doesn't have to be very formal. Just tell me how much money you're going to spend. And then I want you to uh, come see me once a year and give me a progress report. Then you can go do whatever you want to go do. And he smiled, looked at me, and said, really? I said, yeah, get out of here. So, he laughed, he got up and walked away and uh, came back with a little business plan to build a, um, a multi-purpose clicker uh, for, for TV. Because, you know, at the, in that day and age, you had seven clickers in front of uh, in front of your uh, your uh, home entertainment environment. He wanted to combine those all into one. And as he got back to it, he said, oh, my gosh, we need an object-oriented, no pointers, uh, uh, virus-proof, uh, simple intelligent programming environment so we invented Java mm -hmm. as a as a means to get to build the product we wanted to build. He eventually built the clicker. Uh, but all of a sudden we uh, ran into Mark Andreessen and crew over at uh, Netscape and 
the browser was just Netscape browser was just taking off. So we married the two, and the, the interactive internet was born. Yeah, and uh, birth of JavaScript as well, right? Because I think the deal was they can use Java, but they wanted to rename LiveScript to JavaScript, right? I believe that's accurate. So, yeah. uh, yes, but JavaScript was done by Netscape. Okay, exactly. And um, so uh, JavaScript was started, but then was folded in back to Sun, or was it? how long was it independent? Um, well... Nothing they were independent on their time. We were a loosely coupled, highly aligned constellation okay. of business units and uh, functions and that sort of thing. At one time, I created a planetary thing where we had JavaScript, SunSoft, Sun Microelectronics, okay. Computer Corporation, uh, Sun Service, and Sun Express. And um, I found out that that became too loosely coupled. And uh, it was very hard to get aligned. So I, that experiment was a dumb experiment on my part, and I broke it up again a couple of years later. But uh, you know, the Java product line uh, mm -hmm. continued on. As you saw the clicker with Oak or Java on it, uh, you got immediately the potential, or was it accident, accidental success? Uh, I, you know, I never got potential in it. All my smart people did. I, I was just good at identifying. Uh, who was excited about something and helping them promote it. Uh, the clicker, actually, we never sold one. Yeah. Uh, and, and the whole idea, we, we, we as a team and, and James as a person, quickly understood. I remember Ed Zaner was, was pretty smart about figuring it out because he, he did a great job of promoting it when we launched Java. We quickly understood that the underlying Uh, Java language and the Java virtual machines were the really valuable technology, not the clicker. And as a result, Java ended up in all the smart cards, all the cell phones, all the desktops, all the servers. And we had 100% of the Mars landing vehicle market because the, the Mars landing vehicle actually had Java in it. So um, it, it scaled um, out of this world. In a literal sense. Exactly. And the success came with Netscape, right? With Netscape and Applets, I believe. That was where it really took off. Yeah. And Netscape was the great carrier pigeon for, uh, um, you know, making and that's how we went viral. Mm -hmm. Netscape was one of the first products to ever go viral, and we piggybacked on that. And I think Netscape went more viral because of Java. Mm -hmm. uh, were you surprised by the success of Java? I've been surprised to this day about how much fun and how much success and how much we change the world. I mean, Twitter is still all written in Java, and my boys, my boys are uh, learning the Java programming language and writing code in Java. It's just um, everything surprises me. I can But tell you, fun. I would say ninety-five percent of uh, of businesses backends running still on Java, so it is uh, more popular than ever. This is I, remember talk, yeah, I remember talking to the U.S. government and, you know, back in the day when security breaches and viruses were a huge problem. They said there, there should not be one line of code written in the Defense Department, except maybe real-time. I mean, we actually did real-time in Java, too, but everything should be written in Java just for safety and security and the defense of, of the nation. But, you know, they, they moved slow there. Mm -hmm. They were still, still doing COBOL and Um, other 
early images that were where they did a lot of Windows stuff, which was you know quite insecure at the time. My first Java one I attended was in the year 2000, and I think it was the biggest. So I remember, I think Rich Green or you told at the keynote uh, that uh, officially there are 30,000 attendees, but only 30,000 because of uh, fire restrictions. So there were actually more unofficially. And um, so it was incredible. Were you nervous on stage or what was the feeling, you know, speaking to 30,000 developers? And what I also remember, the keynote was so big that you had opened all these slots and uh, someone said this is exactly the same size as tractor pulling uh, um, events going on. So um, <laughs> That was probably John Gage with that. With that John Gage, John so, Gage, exactly, John Gage. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, um, when I was... Early on in the year, I used to get nervous before speaking, and after a while, I just said, you know, you're going to be doing a lot of this. Let's just get over being nervous. So I didn't get nervous. Um, and in fact, I like to be mostly unprepared because people don't want to hear you read a speech. They want to hear how you think. So I, I tended to get up there and, you know, I actually made up a phrase that's one of my most famous, um, you have no privacy, get over it. While I was speaking, it wasn't in my notes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, It was it's probably my most memorable phrase, uh, and I, I made it up on stage. So I wasn't nervous in front of large crowds. I got very nervous in front of small crowds. Mm -hmm. And the reason being that if nobody wants to come hear you, we must be doing something wrong. So mm -hmm. the fact that there were 30,000 people out there just told me, hey, we're on to something. And uh, I would get excited, but not nervous. So what's also interesting, in the year 2000, I was lucky because there was also Steve Jobs, I remember, attended the keynote as well, right, with you? Oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so and and why, why I remember that? Because uh, the Java was told uh, to be, or Apple was told to be the best uh, workstation for Java or something. And I came back to Germany and said, hey, now we have to buy Mac because uh, I really have to develop more Java. And... Um, And um, yeah, um, I st have still a recording somewhere and uh, I, I hope you remember something, but if not, uh, I, I thought that uh, there was well, some... Well, the recording, I do remember that he was doing Objective-C, not Java as his primary, and he wanted something that was proprietary and more closed. And he, 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 uh, he's the most brilliant uh, consumer technology. I, I could him and Andy kind of on mm -hmm. uh, pedestals. Uh, Steve Jobs made technology cool. He was a fashion designer of, mm -hmm. of technology. He was the Calvin Klein of, of uh, that, that's not doing him total yeah. justice, but he, he, he made it fashionable and cool and pretty and all that. Andy was the industrial Steve Jobs. He, you know, more, more email, Packets, networking, whatever has gone through in any design technology than probably all the other designers combined. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, these two guys were, were the big leaders. But Andy was uh, much more open mm -hmm. uh, interface, open protocols, because he was more of the networking uh, side of things. So Steve was much very proprietary, and Apple has been a very proprietary and successful company. Mm -hmm. Now, Why Sun was special? So I follow you on Twitter and you're still posting, you know, old posters from Sun Microsystems and some celebration parties or whatever. So it seems like you still remember in Sun in, 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 in a good light. 
So why is why Sun was special? So it can be another Sun right now. Is it possible to start a company which will behave like Sun behaved back then? I don't know. You know, it was it was just fun. We made it fun, kicked butt, had fun. There's two hundred thirty-five thousand former Sun employees out there in the world. Uh, hundreds of uh, former Sun people uh, are CEOs and. Or have been CEOs, Derek Schmidt, Carol Bartz, Satya at Microsoft, uh, Bill Coleman at BEA, lots of lots of people. I mean, it's just um, the old timers remember it. Um, and uh, I think I've taken a lot of the culture and style and uh, the attitudes that we had at Sun and, and, and carried it forward. That's that's exciting. It's just people had a really, really good time. And it was a simpler world. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, there was less, um, division, you know, there's so much division out there in the world today. There was less government intervention. Uh, there was, uh, you could have fun without, I mean, unfortunately, I think all fun offends somebody somewhere. And, uh, you know, offense is something you have to avoid at all costs these days. So it was just, it was just a, a better and more fun time. And it was Really exciting thing with cell phones with cameras everywhere recording everything that he did. And uh, <laughs> so I, I think we all miss good old days sometimes. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned already John Gage. I also really appreciated his presence on keynotes. It was like uh, really insightful. I remember once he said, I don't know, that uh, the uh, broadband connections in California are going to be built out and therefore good times for Java. So he's always like complete different point of view. So what was actually his role at Java One keynotes in relation to Java? So what, who was, or who is John Gage? John, John was our ambassador at large. Mm -hmm. And uh, his title is chief science officer, which he made up and, and self-assigned. <laughs> and uh, I used to, yeah, I used to, But the talking about I accuse of being the chief science fiction officer, but um, <laughs> he was he was great at articulating the persona that we wanted to have, which was open to thinking. He was a brilliant guy um, and uh, knew how to promote in a way that inspired people. So he was a very inspiring character. Uh, he was just he was the perfect MC for John One. Exactly, and. Um I think in the year 2010, you came up on stage and introduced Kuriki. And this made me really curious because it was like out of nothing. So who got the idea? And was it you or or why you started this and why you introduced that on Java One? So Ken Jones was running our education business at the time. And we were in Europe somewhere and having lunch. And my kids were started to pay $130 for a third grade math textbook when nothing has changed since we got hit on the head of an apple. Templus kind of was, is, and will be 20 forever. And I was thinking, why are we open sourcing microprocessors, operating systems, spreadsheets, networking protocols? We spend eight to $15 billion a year just in the U.S. alone every year, annually, once a year on K through 12 education materials. Why don't we create a global community to open source K through 12 education. So we started it was called the Global Education Learning Community and eventually we launched 
we spun it out of the sun because it was too big of an idea. And uh, we, we created Kariki Curriculum Wiki, Kariki.org. And uh, the, the thing has been basically self-funded by me, Brenda's shop, and some really wonderful corporations. So we offer all three. It's now, I think, the largest repository of free and open source uh, community, OER, uh, Open Education Resources Technology. We have 270,000 free and open learning assets in this Lego bucket. Just everything you can imagine, con videos, uh, science projects, textbooks. Uh, we actually have a, a, a actual curriculum for classes like eighth grade math, third grade, uh, social studies, whatever. And we're slowly building out Lego again, which will be a free online internet uh, enabled multimedia ready uh, uh, internationalized, localized, self-paced, on-demand, real-time scored, uh, certified K-12 education experience that is free. And, and is it successful? What's that? Is it successful? Um, it's, I think, one of the most successful startups per penny invested. Uh, we have three and a half employees. We have uh, over 200 million students who are touched by this. We have, I think, 12 million uh, active registered users, thousands of groups uh, of teachers and parents and students who get together and use this. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the growth rate, the time on site, the hits, all the rest of it, it's it's a, a wildly successful dot-com startup. And people say, why don't you turn it into a dot-com? And I, I say, because I want it to be free. Um, you know, it turns out there's a lot of education startups that are dot-coms that, uh, you know, hit the, that become shipwrecks because schools and teachers and parents and students don't have money to pay for education. So it all gets sucked up into the government school systems. So, um, you know, our, our goal is to uh, ultimately provide this this answer. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who are very excited about helping us uh, create a free uh, online self-paced experience. The real key itself is real-time scoring. It's called gamification. You know, real-time feedback and whether you got it wrong, right or wrong in leaderboards. And we're going to be building that into the, into the whole system as opposed to the current process where you don't really find out so a few days after how you did on the test. So, um, so you are still involved because you are saying uh, we. So, you are still involved in Kuriki? Oh, absolutely! I spend uh, uh, a ton of my time as chairman at Wayne.com, and I spend a ton of time as a board member and co-founder of Kuriki.org. Anybody out there, please go to curriki.org and donate, please. This is a, a great cause. Uh, I know it's the most expensive thing I've ever done in my life personally, but uh, it's, it's very rewarding. It is, but it is not very capitalistic point of view, right? You know, I believe in uh, corporate, private sector capitalism, Okay, but private uh, charity. And, and for the most part, I do all my charity anonymously. Um, and, and I don't believe corporations should be doing charity. They should be returning money to the shareholders who do charity. Oh, perfect. This is a separation of concerns, what we say in software. Exactly. Software. <laughs> There's been a huge conflict of interest. And by the way, most shareholders have different views on where they would like to be charitable. So since they're the ones that put the money up to create the value, uh, they're the ones that should decide where the charitable contributions go. 
And I would rather have I would rather have private sector charity than government sector charity. Um, and that's a that's always a big uh, third rail uh, topic. But uh, I'm happy to have uh, an intelligent and calm conversation with people about that topic uh, because I, I just believe that the private sector is is uh, far more accountable than the public sector is. In one point of time, I think around 2010, Jonathan Schwartz became, I think, CEO or CTO, and you became the chairman, right? Uh, right, about five years before I worked with us. Uh, mm -hmm. My boys were two, four, six, and eight, and I told the board, listen, I've been doing this for over 20 years. Um, it's time for me to step back and let somebody else run it, and um, I want to be there uh, while my boys are growing up. And so you are still became okay. a CEO. But you are still one of the, uh, there was the longer period in the history of Silicon Valley or something, right? 20 years. There's no other example of someone. Oh, being... Larry, Larry Allison was there for oh, okay. more. There's, there's others, but um, it was, you know, it was, you know, I don't know. I probably could have stayed longer if I'd had a staff for cats like Larry Allison does and kind of delegated it more. But I always had to work harder than anybody else in the company. And so the day I decided I didn't want to work harder than anybody else in the company, I thought that's probably time for me to step aside. Okay. So that was your idea to become a chairman? Yes. And uh, my impression was as a chairman, so you still attended the keynotes, and but you had a lot more fun. So I remember you had like, you know, Uh, a, a slide deck with what you can do as a chairman better than before, like, you know, 10 points, and they were really, really funny. You remember yeah, the presentation? I, I, I remember the, you know, the top 10, that's what I remember the exact idea, but it was, it was definitely less stressful and all of a sudden, although it was also um, a little stressful to watch your company go a direction that maybe you wouldn't take it in if you were there. Mm -hmm. But you sort of have to let it go, sort of like when my... My, my boys go off to college, I sort of have to step back, step away from the child and let them grow and go and make their own mistakes. Yeah. And uh, what is actually a job of a chairman? So you had to, I don't know, is it an advisory job or what were what were your tasks at Sun Microsystems back then? Well, I was a board member inside a normal board uh, task, but as chairman and co-founder of Sun, my job was basically to go out and um, really Jonathan of having to go visit every one of our customers. Okay. Um, so I said, I just traveled a lot. I was gone four days out of five, but I was home for the weekends. So okay. I could be with the boys. So. Mm -hmm. And um, you know Larry Ellison personally? or I, I did. He's a good friend. Okay. This was my impression because what I remember is the um, Sun Oracle keynote where Oracle took over Sun. And there was a, actually somehow interesting situation where Jonathan Schwartz uh, announced the acquisition and then Larry said, okay, I would like to talk with Scott. <laughs> and then you came out and um, you, you built something for, for Larry, I remember, something with a yacht, as though like a flag or something, something to do with the ocean, like signal flags or whatever. And he just said, okay, I, I don't care. I just would like to everything be, being Java at Oracle back then. We would like to port everything to Java. So this is what I really remember. So it seemed to me like uh, you and, and Larry were good friends. Yeah, we, we've been good buddies. I remember the first time we met him uh, was on an airplane. We actually sat 
uh, down in seats next to each other. This was you know, back in the early 80s. And we started talking, and you know, we were already working together. He gave me a new Gillette shaver that had two blades on it. He said, you got to try this. It's really good. It really works. <laughs> it's funny he would do that, given that he always has a beard. But uh, you know, I thought it was funny, but here's the CEO of Oracle giving me a free razor on the airplane. <laughs> That's really cool. It worked. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and it was, uh, you know, completely offline, right? Absolutely. What um, the conversation started behind the scenes or how, how it works? So it's like um, Oracle calls you or it happens more formally. So how s uh, such an acquisition works behind the scenes? So it's like uh, informal, everything starts with informal discussion or is very formal from the beginning? Well, um, I, I believe the conversation started with uh, Jonathan and IBM talking and IBM put an offer on the table. It wasn't very uh, attractive in some way. So I called Larry Ellison and I said, hey, would you be interested in uh, putting a bid on the table? He very quickly, within a week, put a bid on the table that was in every way better than the IBM mm -hmm. uh, offer per, per uh, our uh, legal counsel. And so the board voted on that and took it to the shareholders and It was accepted, so a very capitalist thing. Yeah, very very pragmatic, I would say. One week, it's a, it's a great story. I would expect, you know, months of discussions and meetings and stuff like that. Okay. It's not like Oracle didn't, and IBM didn't know everything about us. They did. Okay. And uh, was it uh, Gillette sh sh uh, Shaver included? <laughs> no, I guess. <laughs> no, no. no. In fact, I lasted two days at Oracle, which I think was a paperwork uh, mess up, so... Mm -hmm. um, Larry, Larry got me out of there in a hurry. Okay. And um, what is weigh-in? So you, I think, not immediately, I, my impression was, immediately you started with weigh-in, and uh, I tried to find out what it is. It seems to me a little bit like Twitter, I would say, and uh, yeah. with social background, uh, social media. Sure. What was your it's idea? Little, idea? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit, we've pivoted a little bit since we got it started, but you know, I just couldn't sit around Do nothing. So I've been doing a lot of advisory work and I advise probably 30 different companies. I just advise for stock options. I don't, I'm just, you know, I'm an advisor to the CEO, I'm not an employee, I don't get healthcare, I don't get cash. And uh, I found out that, you know, free advisory work had infinite, infinite demand. So I uh, suggested the people the only way I can prioritize my time. And right now I have 3,916 emails on my staff of work that I should be working on. Uh, instead of doing an interview, but this is fun. Um, and so I just tell people, I'll prioritize based on um, the value and the amount of stock options that I'm getting. It doesn't mean It's easier to figure out using economics to prioritize my time. But one company I did start, put some money in um, to help raise money for was way in. And having grown up in marketing as my father was group vice president of North American Marketing and vice chairman eventually of American Motors in the auto industry, I've been watching TV and print and other advertising worlds for, for a long period of time. And it just is so frustrating to not know if anybody read the magazine ad. You can't do A-B testing, billboards. Uh, nobody knows who's watching the TV. And nobody really knows what they follow And ad agencies are always telling everybody, hey, the product did well because of our ad, and the, the product did poorly because it sucked. 
Um, you know, you can never really have accountability of matching buyers or sellers. They didn't want to ask King on, and it was supposed to be a big change, but they're really basically the same little 30 second movies repurposed onto your cell phone or your PC. And all of this targeting that all the big analytics was doing didn't change anything. ATT ran the first digital ad back in the 90s. And it had a 43% click-through rate. The click-through rate now on Facebook and Google digital ads with all of this analytics and targeting is less than 1%. And more than half of those click-throughs are accidental. So we need a change. The internet, we need to Uber the advertising uh, paradigm. And uh, that's what Wayne is trying to do. So what we've done is said people are now watching and engaging with the brands, with a keyboard, a touchscreen, a camera, and a microphone in their hands. Why not allow them to talk directly, one-to-one, -one, back to the back to the brands, to the consumer companies, to the customer um, suppliers? So uh, we have built, if you will, an iTunes store of 75 prefab uh, reference architecture engage, engagement campaigns. Things like sweepstakes, product configurators, quizzes, uh, brackets, advent calendars, those sorts of things that you can uh, hold down out of the store, configure very quickly without IT needing to be involved, without uh, a lot of creative. Uh, and you can uh, launch those on your channel anywhere you want and then re sell them and save them for next year when the Super Bowl comes around or when Christmas comes around or whatever. And you can share them with other divisions inside the company. So we signed up Coca-Cola, they have 500 products off in 200 countries. That's a lot of admin calendars to go do. Oh, instead, they can share one across all of those geographies. And, you know, that's a huge money saver. And the most important part of it is the customer gets zero party data back. We, we've seen what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Uh, Third-party data is, is a big issue with the GDPR stuff. Zero-party data is opt-in incentive data that uh, is, is offered in return for value, like a sweepstakes to win something to get a discount or uh, whatever. And uh, instead of Facebook and Google getting the first-party first data, now the brands can get the first-party data directly. Coca-Cola gets the data, not Facebook or Amazon or Google. So anyhow, that's a quick overview of what we're doing. It's pretty exciting, pretty fun, and uh, all of the big brands are very, very excited about it. Okay. So for me as a, as a, as a programmer, so what you describe right now is more like peer-to-peer, -peer, honest and transparent advertising, right? Something like this? Yeah. Exactly. In so, fact, the latest thing that we just offered our micro experiences where you can have these interactive experiences uh, embedded in your ad units. So the ad units show up on, on Snapchat or Twitter or whatever. Uh, you can actually capture first-party data from, uh, from Snapchat or whatever. So th that's another very powerful way for uh, media buys uh, to actually fill your own data lakes as opposed to Facebook, Google, or Amazon's data lake. Yeah, so you are using the others as a platform and the uh, the metadata 
goes back to to your application, right? Yes. So the um, you are actually a remarkable businessman because what you also said is around 2006 is that uh, in seven to eight, five to seven years, iPod is not going to be that successful because. Uh, you could stream music from iPhones. This is or iPhones or cellular phones. This is what I read on Wikipedia. Is it somehow true? Well, I don't know many people who have iPods anymore. Um, and you know, ultimately everything ends up in the cloud. Yeah. And ultimately, we want to get thinner and thinner on the clients. Five um, G comes along. I think there'll be a whole bunch of things that'll move more to the cloud. Yeah. And all the IoT stuff will move to the cloud and that sort of thing. So I, I said a long time ago that eventually your wallet will go away. And right now, I carry my cell phone with me, and it has two two cards in there. It has my it has a credit card, and it has my ID, my uh, driver's license. Mm -hmm. So I don't carry a wallet anymore. And, and it truly has happened that the wallet the wallet is has gone by the wayside. Yeah, absolutely. So what I just wanted to say that is actually you are somehow interested in the technology so you can foresee the future a bit, which is a harder for us programmers because we are really excited, you know, I would say I was really excited about the iPods 10 years ago and you say, okay, now it's iPod, but in 10 years, forget about that. And this is probably what also made uh, Sun successful. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I was the visionary, but I would. I was a good listener, and I would listen to the visionaries, and I was pretty good at picking out things that I thought would be achievable. Although I miss a lot too myself, and and sometimes we called it right, but we were too early, or sometimes we called it right but didn't execute. Uh, but that's the beauty of capitalism; it all eventually happens. Mm -hmm. And um, Wayan, uh, are you using still Java and Wayan? Um, I believe so. <laughs> um, I, I, I expected, I expected 100% Java, the answer, you know, <laughs> um, I, I'm sure there's Java in there, but, um, you know, it's, um, I, I don't really get into the technical, I'm a golf major, not, a, not an engineer. So perfect. So thank you a lot for the interview. Uh, where people can find you or where you can find your endeavors or what you focus right now. So well, follow me on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, that's at Scott McNeely. And then uh, my, you can get me on my email address at scott.mcneely at wayin.com, W-A-Y-I-N.com. Mm -hmm. Big thanks. Thank you very much for the interview. Well, thanks for your time. Take care. Bye-bye.